following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Well, it's good to see everybody here this morning. Uh, If you would turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 8, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8 this morning again. uh, We were there last week when Nathan was preaching, but we're going to look at something a little bit different this morning. Uh, so if you are visiting here, you're not normally part of our Cornerstone family. Uh, I'm John Sweeney. I'm one of the pastors here, and Chris Lowndes and his uh, wonderful family are away on vacation uh, these couple of weeks, and we decided a long time ago that the elders would, the rest of the elders here would take the month of August, and we would walk through different aspects of the Gospel of Matthew uh, to enable Chris to kind of get away and take a step back for a little bit. So we've been preaching through uh, Joshua, and that's been a great uh, learning experience and great way to see God moving among his people in that. And uh, so we're taking a little break now and we'll be back in Joshua in September uh, upon Chris's return. So anyway, glad to have you all here with us this morning. So I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 8 and I'm going to read the first 13 verses of this. And uh, actually before we do that, I'm just going to back up a little bit and let you know, you know, kind of the context of where we're at here. What we're going to see today is Jesus' authority uh, on full display uh, through a couple of healing, uh, healing episodes that he creates here. This episode, the way Matthew records it, happens right after the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus has given this lengthy sermon uh, that really is there to display uh, what the kingdom of heaven should and would look like. And so the sermon itself details the heart of all the requirements of the law as given by Moses, and it's an expression of the Father's intent that he would have a people that displayed to the world through their interactions with one another what his character is like. And so in this sermon, now that he has described the kingdom of heaven, now he's going to demonstrate what that kingdom looks like. So let's read our passage uh, this morning and ask the Spirit to illuminate our minds and to hear God's word and respond in faith. Beginning with verse 1 of chapter 8. Then he, Jesus came down from the mountain, and great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this. And he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, 
Let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you that your word is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Thank you that your word does not return to you void, but that it waters the earth and brings forth life. Illuminate our minds to hear the word clearly. Help us to respond in faith, and may it bring forth life in us so that we may look more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Matthew opens up this portion of the gospel with Jesus coming and confronting two very, very uh, difficult medical cases, one of leprosy and another of paralysis. The Old Testament describes leprosy in detail uh, in several places, and in the stories of Israel's history, God struck three prominent figures among God's covenant people with leprosy because of some particular sin. That was Moses' sister Miriam, Elisha's servant Gehazi, and Uzziah, king of Judah. In Numbers chapter 12, years after the Exodus and during uh, Israel's desert wanderings, uh, Miriam and her brother Aaron, as siblings sometimes do, complained about and opposed Moses. Well, the problem was God wasn't opposing Moses. So in effect, they were opposing God. And God, God called the two of them to account and in the process struck Miriam with leprosy for a week for her insolence. Gehazi was servant to the prophet uh, Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 5. Well, the Syrian king Naaman suffered from leprosy. Elisha told him to dip seven times in the Jordan River and he would be healed. Out of gratitude, the wealthy king wanted to pay Elisha, but Elisha refused, wanting instead for Yahweh to get all the glory. However, Gehazi, his servant, decided, you could use some of that cash. And so he followed after Naaman, saying Elisha had sent him to get some money on behalf of some other traveling prophets. Gehazi acted deceitfully, and God struck him and his descendants with leprosy forever. Then in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, Uzziah, king of Judah, became prideful and arrogant over some important military victories that he had won. Well, the Bible says that he became unfaithful to Yahweh and entered the temple to offer incense, something only priests could do. When the priests came together to stop him, he became angry, and leprosy instantly broke out on his forehead. Uzziah's arrogance led him to sin against a holy God. So Yahweh struck him, and he remained a leper for the rest of his life. Well, chapters 13 and 14 of Leviticus detail the complicated procedures that were required for cleansing leprosy. Only God could do it. No medical intervention or any medical procedures alone could heal leprosy. The cleansing involved guilt offerings, sin offerings, and burnt offerings. So Jesus, cleansing the leprosy here in this case, is a sign to them that he is from God. The man who could take away leprosy was the lamb who would take away the sin of the world. Leprosy was an especially insidious disease requiring separation from holy things and from the entire covenant community for weeks or months or perhaps even permanently, as no other disease did. Leprosy could only be inspected by the priests to verify whether or not it had been taken away. And besides leprosy being on the skin, it could be in their garments and in the very walls of their homes. Lastly, it's important to note that in the removal of other maladies and illnesses throughout Scripture, the verb to heal is used. But in the case of leprosy, the Bible almost exclusively uses the verb to cleanse. So people can heal other people through natural means, but only leprosy, only God could cleanse people. Kind of an important distinction. 
Well, in this account by Matthew, the leper is a Jew, as evidenced by Jesus' instructions to him to go to the priests and offer the gifts commanded by Moses. Leviticus 14 outlines this whole uh, rather interesting process. So someone is supposed to bring the person with, leper, uh, with leprosy to the priest, along with two live, clean birds, some scarlet yarn, a piece of cedar wood, and a branch of hyssop. The priest would command the people, whether they were his friends or his family, to kill one of the birds in a very specific way. And then the priest would dip the scarlet yarn, the cedar wood, and the hyssop and the other live bird into the blood of the other unfortunate bird and sprinkle that blood on the patient seven times. That would kick off another eight days of washing, shaving, and living outside of your own home, followed by a series of sacrifices and offerings. Well, in verse 3, Jesus reaches out and touches him. Well, this man has not been cleansed yet, and according to Levitical laws, anyone who touches a leper is unclean. The exception seems to be with priests, who are to closely examine people who are suspected of having leprosy. And I can't find anything in Scripture that says that in doing so, they themselves become unclean. So Jesus, in touching him, shows himself to be a priest, and in healing him, shows himself to be a man of authority. Well, the cleansing comes instantly. According to Leviticus, it takes a minimum of seven days of isolation and re-examination and maybe several cycles of this before the priest could confirm a person was clean. Well, Jesus cleanses him and in verse 4, sends him directly to the priest for the examination. Now, assuming this person has been following the law all along, the priests will surely know that it has been something less than seven days since the last examination, which will be the proof to them that Jesus is God. And also, in accordance with Leviticus, the priest would provide a certificate of cleansing. And only once he had that was he to tell anyone who had cleansed him. This provides the evidence. Hey, look, the priest just declared me clean. Look at this little certificate I've got. And you guys know how, I, how I've been dealing with this until I met this guy, Jesus. It's awfully hard to refute this. Jesus cleanses by the power of his word. In Genesis, God spoke creation into existence merely by his word. God said, let there be, and there was, and it was good. He has authority to do so, and he has authority to touch and cleanse those who are unclean while his own holiness remains unaffected. But without faith in that authority, we're unable to partake in the cleansing that he offers. The leper exercised faith by coming to Jesus, humbly kneeling before him, and showing his trust in Jesus by declaring his power and authority to cleanse him. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He only needed to know if this king would desire to heal him. And Jesus does not disappoint. And not only cleanses him, but he touches him. This is something that this man has not felt, another human's touch, for God only knows how long he's been dealing with this leprosy because no one else would want to touch him because in doing so, they themselves will become unclean. So lepers were almost never touched by another human. Can you imagine what that touch must have felt like. Now, we know that Jesus has this authority to do all kinds of things. Nathan spoke last week about his authority over the demons in the account of the two tormented Gadarenes. We also know at the end of Matthew's gospel that Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Are we willing to humbly submit to it? Well, now let's move on to the rest of our story, verses 5 through 13. Uh, here we have this Roman centurion with a servant 
suffering from paralysis, whom the centurion asks Jesus to heal. Well, centurions were military leaders uh, of a hundred men, loyal subjects to Rome and an extension of Roman rule and authority. Their orders were to be strictly obeyed and anyone disobeying Caesar could be publicly executed and often were, usually by crucifixion. Centurions answered to those above them and they had subjects beneath them as well. In addition, most Romans were not believers in Yahweh, but were pagans, believing in many gods of which Caesar himself was chief. However, this centurion was obviously a believer in Yahweh, proving once again that God has his remnant everywhere. He addresses Jesus as Lord, and he openly declares in front of a crowd, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. This is quite risky for him. He considers Jesus to be in authority over him. What do you think this communicated to his fellow soldiers and particularly to his superiors? He's probably a commander-in-chief of this uh, Roman uh, garrison that's quartered at Capernaum. If that's true, he probably lived a relatively nice life. And this statement of loyalty to Christ could cost him all of that if someone were to decide to run this up the chain of command that he was loyal to Jesus and not necessarily to Caesar. Well, apparently he had counted that cost because in Luke 7, verse 5, the centurion is identified as one who loves Israel and whom the elders of Israel loved. And in fact, he had built them a synagogue. We'll contrast this with our earlier story of Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman was a Syrian army commander who was infected with leprosy. Let's note Naaman's attitude toward the prophet of God. He was told he should go to Elisha the prophet to be cleansed of his leprosy. Well, instead, being rather full of himself, uh, Naaman decided to take along this showy entourage of courtiers, and he intended to go to Jehoram, the king of Israel, instead of to Elisha. Now, Israel was a serious subject at this time in their history, Uh, so he was going to go to the king and demand his healing from him. Well, Elisha heard of it and sent messengers to intercept Naaman. Naaman perceived this to be a personal slight, that neither the king nor this prophet would come to him personally and receive him as a head of state. And to top it off, he was kind of upset at being told to go wash, in the, wash seven times in this lowly, unremarkable river, the Jordan River. After refusing and leaving in a huff, no doubt plotting the destruction of Jehoram and Elisha for this slight, he was convinced to try it anyway. And when he did, sure enough, he was healed. He was cleansed. So our Roman centurion knows that Jesus is a king of some sort. He comes to Jesus, not ordering this Jew with some sort of magical powers to go and heal his servant, but rather beseeching him humbly as someone in need. He sees in Christ something commanding respect. This is pretty remarkable for a Gentile, especially a Roman centurion, because Isaiah warned of Judah, the Messiah had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. This Gentile lays aside his own Caesar-appointed authority and submits himself to Jesus' higher authority. Further, we see the regard with which he holds this unfortunate servant back home. Many people ask Jesus to help their uh, children or other relatives or even good friends, but this is the only example of one who came to him on behalf of a servant. 
Now, it was not uncommon uh, for conquerors to cast aside servants who were sick or otherwise unfit to fulfill their duties. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, David and his band run across an Egyptian in the desert who was abandoned there by his Amalekite master because he had been sick and he was left there to die. Well, instead of following this practice of abandonment, our centurion personally searches out the best relief he could for his servant. He didn't even send another servant to do it. He did it personally. Well, as you know, paralysis is generally outside the skill of physicians to cure. Even today, with our modern medical advancements, we have no cure for cerebral or other palsies. We can only treat them and help people and families to cope with it. So it's great evidence, again, of the centurion's faith in Christ's power to come to him for a cure. Not only that, but he had faith that Jesus could heal at a distance without any physical contact with his servant. Remember the centurion, who's this middle soldier somewhere, had a hundred or so men under him, but he too was under others. So he had a good understanding of the idea of authority in both directions. He recognized in Jesus not a middle soldier, but the commander-in-chief, supreme and sovereign Lord over all. So just as his own words were as good as done once spoken, even more so, Jesus' words are action themselves. Well, Jesus himself gives a monologue that very closely tracks the centurion's statements about authority. In John's gospel, Jesus declares that the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. He also tells Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. And in the lead into our story in Matthew, at the end of Matthew chapter 7, the crowds were astonished at Jesus' sermon and recognized that he was teaching as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So clearly, if all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to Jesus, it follows that bodily diseases and afflictions are also at Christ's bidding and control and command. Sickness and death are a result of the fall and a curse upon fallen creation. Whether or not God directly causes a particular illness or tragedy He certainly allows them to come upon us for his design purposes, such as our perseverance and sanctification in Christ. These things have the effect on us that he desires. Well, for those of us who belong to Christ, this is a great comfort, since he exercises his power for our good. Every disease is under his control and serves the intentions of his grace, whether it is removed from us in this lifetime or not. Just a chapter earlier, Jesus asks, which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good, good, give good things to him who asks? The Father always gives us bread. The question for us, for me, is do we trust him? Do I trust him? In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul writes that a thorn was given to him in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass him as a grace from God to keep him simply from becoming conceited. Do we think we should not receive a gift such as this from God? Do we trust him like Paul? Johnny Erickson Tata, a famous speaker who has been a quadriplegic for more than 50 years following a swimming accident in Chesapeake Bay, has faithfully followed Christ. She recently said of her heavenly father, He has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. Do we dare refuse our Heavenly Father's embrace in our suffering? Do we trust him like Johnny? 
My wife, Wendy, was diagnosed with cancer at age 25. Trust me, there were a lot of unknowns and pain during that time. The very real prospect of me raising our daughter, Anna, who was only one year old at the time, by myself, terrified me. But from the start, the Spirit gave us great comfort and peace and grace to trust Him no matter what the outcome might be. And again, we had no idea. Well, this was a great comfort. His grace to us was to eradicate what was stage four cancer that had reached her liver, normally a death sentence. Today, her body still suffers indirectly from the effects of the treatments and of the cancer itself, but we continue to thank and trust him. So speaking of faith, let's turn back to our story. Jesus seems to direct his conversation with the centurion to demonstrate the importance of faith. Compare verses two and three with verse seven. In verses 2 and 3, Jesus lets the leper ask him to heal him. But in verse 7, Jesus initiates the offer to go to the centurion's house to heal him. He would have, and you could even say he should have, or he could have, uh, maybe, but maybe should have treated this Gentile with no greater deference than, a Jew, than the Jew with leprosy. After all, he came for the lost children of Israel. He could have made the centurion ask. So what's going on here? Well, I think Matthew is trying to point out that Jesus knew of the centurion's faith, but perhaps wanted to have this conversation in front of everyone in order to demonstrate it to the crowd because he clearly takes advantage of the situation to make a great statement about it and, in fact, to make a greater point about the very salvation of Jews and Gentiles. In verse 10, Jesus marvels at his faith. Not that he's surprised by it because he gave it to him, just as he gives all of us our faith. Rather, he shows those around him the importance and beauty of a holy faith. This centurion, who is not of Abraham's seed like the Jews, is a son of Abraham's faith. Well, this is meant as a great shame to Israel, who depended on being Abraham's literal seed for their salvation. John the Baptist chided the Pharisees and Sadducees about their notion of salvation by telling them, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God, can raise, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. In verses 11 and 12 of our passage, Jesus tells the crowds that Gentiles, such as this Roman centurion, will be included because of their faith, while Israelites will be excluded because of their lack of faith. Several chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans are devoted to this truth. And later, in Matthew eleven twenty-three, Jesus denounces Capernaum, which is exactly where all these things are happening, for not believing. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus declares that the kingdom of God will be taken away from ethnic Israel and given to a people who will, in faith, bear its fruit. He tells us that many from east and west shall be saved. He is using the demonstrated faith of the Roman centurion to rebuke and teach the Jews about the truth of, Jesus, of Yahweh's salvation of both Jews and Gentiles. Well, for us, <clears throat> we may see only a few come to faith here and there in our lifetime, in our culture, in our environment. But these will add up, and we will see Christ bringing many sons to glory. Rest assured, he will come with 10,000 of his holy ones to exercise his authority to execute judgment with a great multitude that no one can number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. They will stand before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in, ro in robes of white with palm branches in their hands and crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God and who sits on the throne 
and to the Lamb. Well, what will this exclusion of the unbelieving Jews look like? They will be thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is an eternal darkness in hell with eternal fire but no light of everlasting destruction, anguish and grief, floods of tears shed for no purpose and great indignation. Though by birth they were children of the kingdom of God, because of unbelief they will be cut off from being members of the invisible church. The kingdom of God of which they have boasted that they are its children will be torn from them. Similarly, if you were born to Christian parents, that will not be enough. You too must not just be children of a Christian family, and I'm speaking to adults here, not necessarily just literal children. You must be children of faith, faith that recognizes God's authority and holiness and your sinfulness and relies upon Christ's mercy to stand in your place to take upon himself the full wrath of God for your sin. Finally, let's check in on the servant himself. Imagine this servant lying on his bed, writhing in agony, suffering torment from his condition, suddenly sensing relief and a whole body, his always tensed and uncontrolled muscles suddenly relaxing. I wonder if anyone was there with that moment with him attending to his needs. What was that like? Did he or any others know that the centurion was going to look for Jesus? Was this a total surprise or had he been cautiously optimistic that he might actually get relief? Was his own mustard seed faith rewarded here? I don't know the answer to these questions, but, and there may have been no context for what was suddenly happening to him. But oh, what joy, such relief. And what did his friends and family think? While God often does let us continue to suffer, he also often gives his children shadows and glimpses of a new heaven and a new earth. Hallelujah. Well, in summary, we've looked at Jesus' authority over heaven and earth. He uh, has authority over sickness and disease here on earth and over the impurity of believers making their way into heaven. In responding to these two earthly situations, Jesus demonstrates Simeon's declaration in Luke chapter 2 that he would be a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. In actually healing these two, Jesus demonstrates that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give himself up a ransom for many. He took on the form of a servant, and he showed that there is in Christ neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Well, what is our application today? <clears throat> if you are not a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ, please listen to me now. Let this message sink down into your heart. Jesus is using these two earthly healings to show us his authority over everything and how we are to respond in faith. As I explained earlier, leprosy was a horrific disease that separated its victims from the community of God and could only be removed by the direct hand of this covenant God. It could only be inspected by priests and verified that it had been taken away, but only God could actually take it away. Well, sin is a leprosy of the soul. It separates us from the communion with God, and we must be cleansed of this horrific illness. In fact, only he can cleanse us of this illness. Romans 8.3 tells us that God has done what the law could not do. Like the priests examining the skin, the law could only inspect and verify sin and pronounce sinners unclean and shut them up in separation. But it couldn't remove it 
couldn't make people perfect. Only God, through Christ, could remove it. This should be your great concern. Note that the, distinguish, the distinction between those who will recline at table in the kingdom of heaven and those who will be thrown out in the outer darkness is a distinction of faith. Like all Christians once were, you are a rebel before God. Until you place your faith, your trust in Christ, your sin and rebellion make you an object of the terrible and righteous wrath of God, and you will be thrown into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. If you are placing your faith anywhere but on Jesus Christ, you are in grievous sin. Please consider Christ's claims and what I've preached here today and repent of your sin and submit to the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ and believe. With a humble and believing boldness, based on his promises, tell him of your illness and ask him to restore you. Matthew Henry, the great Bible commentator, says, no guilt is so great, but that there is a sufficiency in his righteousness to atone for it. No corruption so strong, but there is a sufficiency in his grace to subdue it. If you are a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ, you can both rest in and be challenged by the absolute authority of your Savior. Rest in the assurance of Christ's power, believing that he is able to cure diseases. You can rest knowing that he has authority over sickness and even death, and authority over your enemies, authority over your employer and your current circumstances, authority over your bank account, authority over all of heaven and earth. And he loves you and uses it for your good and his glory. But also recognize Christ's authority to not act in what you consider to be your favor. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Cheerfully submit to his will as Jesus submitted to the fathers in the Garden of Gethsemane and be confident of his wisdom and mercy to give you bread in all things. Lastly, as Christ commands the leper to show the priest his healing, so he sends us to be proof to the world that Christ has healed us of our sin infection. Trust that authority and boldly live as his cleansed people. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful <clears throat> for your cleansing power, for the authority that you have over all of heaven and earth, and that you have designed these things for your glory and for our good, and that you hold us up in your righteous right hand. Father, thank you for the truth that's before us in your word today. And I pray, Spirit, that you would cause these truths to sink into our souls and into our hearts and consider them, that we who are believers would rest in that and would know of your authority and be confident in that and walk in it. And Lord, for those here who don't know you, I pray, God, that your spirit would open up their hearts to this truth and cause them to repent of their sin and to believe and to come to you in trust in your authority. We love you, Lord. Help us to worship you rightly now again. Remind us of these truths throughout this week. In Jesus' name, amen.